and welcome back to The Jaguar. Today we have three segments, starting off with Emma Compton's definitely fun and definitely kind of freaky history fact in honor of Women's History Month. Hello everyone, Emma Compton here with some freaky fun history facts. It is now March again, which is throwing my head for a bit of a loop. Besides the beginning of quarantine though, March is also Women's History Month, which is very exciting. So, in honor of all the the wonderful women that have made history, we're going to be talking about a woman that has changed the world, but we don't even really know her name. We have a lot of nicknames for her, uh, mainly the Unknown Woman of the Sen, the Most Kissed Girl in the World, and most popularly, Recessi Annie. This woman changed medical practices across the world and has helped save countless lives. The story starts in Paris in the late 1880s, when the body of a young girl, who was estimated to be about 16, was pulled out of the River Seine. She was taken to a morgue, and because of the manner of death, and the lack of any really physical trauma to her body, her death was ruled a suicide. So the morgue displayed her body, and even though this might sound pretty creepy to us now, it was common at the time because they were waiting for a family member or someone that knew her to come and identify her and collect the body for a proper burial. Sadly, no one came. No one knew her and no one knew where to take her. And if you thought that, oh yeah, displaying a body is pretty weird, well, it's about to get a little bit weirder because as the story goes, Someone that worked at the morgue was really obsessed with her face, and specifically how peaceful and beautiful she looked. So this guy that works at a morgue orders a death mask of her face. And if you don't know what a death mask is, well, they're pretty much what they sound like. They first started in Egypt. They would take a cast of the face after death and bury the cast with the person, because they believed that it would help the spirit of the dead find their body in the afterlife. It's estimated that somewhere around the Middle Ages, the death mask became less of a religious or a ceremonial object, and more of a way to remember the dead. And this may seem really, really weird to us, I know it does to me, but they didn't have cameras like we do, and they couldn't have photographs of their dead loved ones. So it would be really comforting to see a loved one's face after they've passed on. Anyway, death masks were really common and we have tons of them, especially in museums, right? Like Dante, the famous poet, and Mary Queen of Scots, and even Napoleon Bonaparte. So this creepy morgue guy gets a death mask for a girl and then starts selling it everywhere. And people actually buy it. Artists and poets and writers started to use her as this wonderful muse. She was even featured in the, in the novella The Worshipper of the Image by Richard Lacalaine. She was also the subject of countless artworks and often described as a modern-day Ophelia. Albert Camus, a famous philosopher and author, even compared her to the Mona Lisa. Despite her initial popularity, what made her really famous didn't really happen until around 1955. The son of Asmund Lairdal, and forgive me if I pronounced that incorrectly, almost drowned. But thankfully, Lairdal was able to save his son. 
and Lerdahl was a Norwegian toy manufacturer and specialized in soft dolls. And a few years after his son's near death, he was approached and asked to make a dummy doll for cardiopulmonary resuscitation, CPR. And he obviously agrees. So he wanted to make the doll seem both lifelike and non-threatening. And because of the rampant homophobia at the time, and still sometimes nowadays, a woman's face would be best. Lairdahl assumed, probably correctly, that male students would feel hesitant to train on a male dummy. So the face that was chosen in the end was the woman of the sun. Now, there is of course some debate as to whether the mask was actually taken of a dead woman's face. Many people have claimed that such a peaceful face is rare, if not impossible, on someone that had drowned. Typically, they claim the faces of drowning victims are swollen and deformed. It's a common theme in poetry and art to depict drowning as a peaceful, quiet death. Spoiler alert, it isn't. But many suggest that this assumption allowed the rumor and the sale of the death mask of someone who is never even dead. But the woman, dead or alive, did change the world. Over 5.4 million people were trained in CPR in 2019 alone. Odds are they used Annie as their CPR doll. Annie also inspired a very notable pop culture moment, or rather lyric. In Michael Jackson's hit song, Smooth Criminal, the refrain, Annie, are you okay? And if you don't know, when you're learning to administer CPR, you're taught to ask the dummy if they're okay. Hence, Annie, are you okay? But the death of the woman of the Sen raises some questions. We've already talked about the possibility that she was a live model at the time the cast was made. But the story goes that everyone was pretty quick to accept that she was really dead and eager to buy her death mask. And I won't get into a whole analysis right now because I think I would talk for too long, but it definitely shows how we view women in our society. More specifically, thinking that a tragic death is beautiful or really anything other than a tragic loss of human life. The consistent romanticization of women's mental health struggles and deaths, especially by men, is incredibly damaging to the public psyche. Women's struggles being depicted as beautiful and sometimes in a positive light often undermines women's mental illnesses and can make it harder for women to seek treatment and be treated. It also shows that men, and male artists and writers are typically the most guilty of this, often only view women and their accompanying struggles as stepping stones into a man's story. They often degrade and demean women because the women in their lives, even just a death mask that they've seen, have never been presented as people with lives to lose. They, on they only see women as a tragic death mask to write stories about. A woman that committed suicide and is now a beautiful, tragic muse. And I'm going to cut myself off there, because I will talk forever about this. Regardless of whether the woman of the Seine was dead or alive, her face is one of the most famous and has helped save so many people. She's one of the most influential women in history, and most people don't even know that she existed, and no one knows her real name. 
So if one day someone saves you with CPR, thank Annie. But also thank the person that saved you. They probably did a little bit more work than she did. Thank you, Emma, for educating us on the woman that has unintentionally contributed to saving thousands of lives. Next, we'll move on to another State of Our Union segment produced by me. Enjoy. When the Founding Fathers wrote the Constitution, they designed a system of government that was actually set up to keep power away from the people. Dun dun dun! I know this may come as a shock, but we actually don't have a democracy. We have a republic. A system of government in which, pe- in which representatives of the people elect other office holders and make decisions for the people. Now, I don't think we should be outraged at the founders for this decision. In context, it was more representation than almost, if not every other country. Additionally, if we the people had to elect judges at every level, or each cabinet member, it would only likely add to the list of unknown names on the ballot, or probably waste a few billions of of additional campaign money in the process. So, in our republic, our representatives elect other offices. The president is elected by the electoral college, and then he goes on to pick his cabinet. But does this educated representatives electing other representative system actually serve as any more than just a Democrat or Republican Party handout of favors? That is to say, are the people in these seats actually qualified for them, or does it serve as a legal spoil system, where the successful political party gives seats away to its supporters? In today's episode, I'm going to walk you through six people leading our government who were not actually directly elected. The current president and VP, two of his cabinet members, and then, in the spirit of being nonpartisan, do the same for the past president and one of his cabinet members. Let's start with the president. Joe Biden attended Archmere Academy, a private high school in Delaware. After attending high school, he went on to double major in history and political science and minored in English at the University of Delaware. He then earned a law degree from Syracuse University in New York, and after earning his degree, he practiced law as a public defender and then, after several years of experience with that, he opened his own law firm. Then in 1970, he was elected to his first role in public service, Delaware's County Council. He held this seat on the council and continued to practice law until 1972, when he got elected as Delaware senator. Biden's first run for president was 1987, but he dropped out of the primaries after he reportedly plagiarized a speech. Still in the Senate in 1997, he became the ranking Democrat on the Foreign Relations Committee and headed the committee from 2001 to 2003. He retired from there in 2007, the year he ran for president, and lost to the strong grassroots campaign of Obama. Obama nominated him as VP, likely because of his blue-collar neighborhood upbringing, and after serving as VP for eight years, he again ran for president in the next election available to him, 2020, and is now our current president. Here's probably a good place to stop and make note of some questions I'd like to bring your attention to. What does it take to be president? What kind of experiences should you have? Should a life in public service look, be looked at as a positive, or does it render candidates foreign to the struggles of the citizens, the farmers' independence, the business starters' countless hours of work, or the stress of the fast food manager as they are taking orders, making food, and cashing people into the drive through Should a degree in political science or public policy be necessary? Are they missing the economics or the environmental or the public health background to hold this position? Let's move on. Kamala Harris, being much younger, has a bit of a shorter background. She received her undergraduate degree from Howard University in political science and economics, and then a law degree from Hastings College. After earning this, she served as deputy deputy district attorney from 1990 to 1998, 
in Oakland, California, and then rising through the ranks became district attorney in 2004. In 2010, she was nearly elected attorney general of California and in 2016 easily won the Senate election. And in case you were living in Iraq somewhere after her presidential run in 2020, she received the VP nomination from Biden. Next, onto a cabinet member that your parents, or maybe you two, are probably reasonably familiar with, Jennifer Granholm. Nominated as Secretary of Energy by President Biden, she was Governor of Michigan from 2003 to 2011. The Department of Energy is one of, if not the largest cabinet position. It includes all energy-related issues, everything from management of the nuclear facilities to energy conservation and research efforts. According to Llewellyn King, a journalist at Forbes, Granholm will become a key player in the nation's defense, de facto its chief scientist, a guardian of the electric grid against a cyber attack, and controller of the largest scientific research organization, the DOE's 17 national laboratories. Probably the heftiest element of that long list is the Nuclear Security Administration, which looks after nuclear weapons. It includes maintenance, ensuring accurate computer testing, giving parameters for underground testing, and making sure that the weapons are in working order. So here's a little bit about her background. In 1994, she graduated from University of California, Berkeley, with a degree in political science and French. She then went on to earn a law degree from Harvard Law School and clerked for a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals. In 1994, she was elected Wayne County Corporation to the Wayne County Corporation Council, excuse me, and in 1998, she was elected Michigan Attorney General. After serving there for four years, she then moved on to serve as governor, and like any politician, her track record as governor is controversial, especially on energy. She initiated many clean energy projects with varying degrees of success, but I'll let you do your own research on that one, because it was pretty hard for me to find any sources that came even close to having an unbiased view of her and her background. Nonetheless, these green energy initiatives were likely the reason she was President Biden's pick for the Department of Energy. Next, we'll discuss Pete Buttigieg, our current Secretary of Transportation and someone who is, in my opinion, likely the new face of our generation of politics. Buttigieg earned a bachelor's degree from Harvard University for Literature and the Rhodes Scholarship at University of Oxford, where he continued his studies. He then went on to be employed by a few different consulting firms in D.C. Not to get bored in the office, though, Within 10 years of graduating college, Buttigieg enlisted in the armed forces and was later sent to Afghanistan for five months in 2014. Actually, right before he was sent to Afghanistan, Buttigieg became mayor of South Bend, Indiana. As you'll probably know, he ran for the Democratic presidential nominee in 2019, and though he didn't win, he did successfully make a name for himself across the country. That's a reason many argue is unsurprising when President Biden named him Secretary of Transportation. In case you can't tell what the Department of Transportation is from its name, it plays a large role in building and regulating the safety of roads, airways, and other forms of public transportation. Additionally, it provides the safety guidelines for automotives, airplanes, and other vehicles. So, what is Buttigieg's experience in this? According to Max Lewis, journalist at MSN, he pioneered South Bend's smart street programs, which got rid of one-way streets and expanded sidewalks and biking downtown. He also installed several roundabouts. Obviously, critics are arguing that Pete Buttigieg only received this position after the election primaries of 2019, where he became a rising star in the Democratic Party. The only rebuttal I can give to you was President Biden's tweet after he nominated Buttigieg that said he was a leader, patriot, and problem solver. So, there's that. Next, moving on to our former president, Donald Trump. 
Donald Trump attended New York Military Academy, a private boarding school. He then went on to Fordham University and two years later transferred to University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Finance and Business, where he received a degree in economics. Then Trump started working full-time for his father's business, where he managed its rental housing. Less than 10 years later, he became the president of the Trump-owned Towers, Trump-owned Corporations and Partnerships, excuse me, which he renamed the Trump Organization. While he was continuing to develop the Trump Organization and, a gr and growing a list of investments, he began to lightly joke about running for president in the 1980s. Actually, in case you were interested in seeing the progression of his views over time, he published a book called called The America We Deserve, in which he set forth his socially liberal and economically conservative political views. In 2012, he joined and became a prominent member of the Republican Party. And four years later, well, I'm confident you know the rest. Trump ran for president in 2016 and beat Hillary Clinton, and then lost 2020 to our current president, Joe Biden. However, I will note here that Trump's election in 2016 is one of the five times in our nation's history where the system of representatives appointing other representatives comes into effect. Trump did not win the popular vote, but won the electoral vote, which disproportionately gives smaller states more representation. Trump's pick for Secretary of Housing and Urban Development was Dr. Ben Carson. Ben Carson was born in Detroit, and when he was eight years old, his parents got divorced. He didn't have much of an interest in school until his mom essentially forced his head into the books, which worked out okay because it was the action that led him to him finding his love for learning. Now, I'm not going to elaborate much on the details of this transformation, but if you're interested, there is a movie about his inspirational life called Gifted Hands, where you can get the full image. Back to his early years, though. In 1973, he earned a bachelor's in psychology from Yale University. Four years later, he attended University of Michigan and received a medical degree. Then he went on to another prestigious university, John Hopkins, where he specified his education in neurosurgery. Ben Carson is widely revered across his field, in surgery that is, well known for being the first surgeon to successfully split conjoined twins that were attached in the back of the head. So how did he get into politics? In 2012, Carson and his wife published America the Beautiful, Rediscovering What Made This Nation Great, which commuted communicated his growing interest in politics. Carson used his platform to speak out for morally conservative issues and likewise gained attention in the Republican Party. Eventually, he became a commentator on Fox. In 2016, he set out to run for the Republican presidential nomination, but fell short after questions mounted about his grasp on foreign policy. After supporting his campaign, Trump nominated Carson for the Department of Housing and Urban Development. The Department of Housing and Urban Development Responsibilities include equal access to housing and employment opportunities, funding new housing, and carrying out programs to serve the low-income, elderly, disabled, mentally ill, and minority groups. Not very much to do with neurosurgery. The point in telling you all this isn't to sway your political opinions or persuade you into backing one of these appointees. It's to provide you with an unbiased background information so you can decide if the system is efficient. Do you think there should be qualifications for these positions? Or are successful and driven people able to su succeed in any area? Does it accomplish the founder's original goal of ensuring enlightened leaders? Or is there a better way to enable that outcome? I'd also like to note I did a bit of bashing on these people for their seeming lack of qualifications. But maybe that's a good thing. Maybe a government where anyone can get into these positions instead of a distant elitist makes the government more responsive to the people. Or maybe not. 
I hope you'll do some research for yourself and come to your own conclusions. And if you do, please share with me. Thank you for listening to this segment of the State of Our Union, and have a wonderful day. Our last segment of the day is Sophie Miller with some history as a wrap-up to the Black History Month, which just ended in February. I'm Sophie Miller, and welcome to our new segment of the Jaguar called Polistory. Polistory will be discussing politically and historically significant events or people that define societies across the globe, hence the pun. Today, we will be discussing the contribution and bravery of Marsha P. Johnson from the Stonewall Uprising of 1969 in honor of Black History Month. Marsha P. Johnson was born Malcolm Michaels Jr. on August 24, 1945 in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Johnson had six siblings living with her father, Malcolm Michaels Sr., an assembly line worker at General Motors, and her mother, Alberta Claiborne, a housekeeper. Growing up, there were many challenges for Johnson to face. She began to wear dresses at five years old, but had to stop due to harassment by boys who lived nearby. Johnson even experienced sexual assault by another boy. After that point, she chose to remain in the closet until she moved to New York City in 1963 at the age of 17. Arriving with only $15 and a bag of clothes, Marsha had no clue the type of impact she would make one day. Johnson got a job waiting at tables in 1966 after moving to Greenwich Village. She finally had the space and support to come out as a gay man, as well as identifying as a transvestite and drag queen. She then decided her drag name, Marsha P. Johnson, with the P standing for Pay It No Mind. This was a reference to whenever she was questioned about her gender, she would sarcastically say, Pay It No Mind. Although she could not do high drag due to the inability to afford more expensive stores, she would still dress in robes, shiny dresses, red plastic high heels, and bright wigs, enough to attract attention. Although she had some experience in high drag, most of Johnson's performance work was with groups more associated with politics, comedy, and grassroots. Johnson was able to be one of the first drag queens allowed to go to the Stonewall Inn, which was previously a bar for gay men only. On June 28, 1969, the Stonewall Uprising occurred. The Stonewall Uprising was described as, quote, a series of spontaneous demonstrations by members of the gay community in response to a police raid that began in the early morning hours of June 28, 1969 at the Stonewall Inn in Greenwich Village, neighborhood of Manhattan, New York City, end quote. Although the first two nights were the most intense, there was constant clashes and tensions between the police and demonstrators for the following weeks. Multiple gay activists and veterans said that on the first night of the uprising, Johnson threw a shot glass at a mirror in the bar and screamed, I got my civil rights. Uh, Robin Souza, who alleged, who alleged to have been there at that moment, stated that it was, quote, the shot glass that was heard around the world. End quote. Johnson was also, along with Zazu Nova and Jackie Hormona, identified as being, quote, three individuals known to have been in the vanguard, end quote, of the pushback against the police at the uprising. It had also been claimed that Johnson had, quote, thrown the first brick, end quote, yet that was never verified. 
Johnson herself has denied starting the uprising as she recalled arriving at 2 a.m. in the morning when the uprising started around 1.20 a.m. after Stormy La sorry, De Lavery fought back against a police officer who attempted to arrest her that night. After the Stonewall Uprising, however, she and Sylvia Rivera established the Sweet Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, aka STAR, in 1970, a group committed to supporting transgender youth experiencing homelessness in New York City. Unfortunately, Johnson was murdered on July 6, 1992, at the age of 46. Although her case was originally closed by the NYPD as an alleged suicide, transgender activist Mariah Lopez fought for it to be reopened for investigation in 2012. In summary, I believe that the Marsha P. Johnson Institution puts it best by stating, quote, Marsha P. Johnson was an activist, self-identified drag queen, performer, and survivor. She was a prominent figure in the Stonewall Uprising of 1969, Marsha went by Black Marsha before settling on Marsha P. Johnson. The P stood for pay and no mind, which is what Marsha would say in response to questions about her gender. It is the consideration of who Black Marsha was that inspired the Marsha P. Johnson Institute. So much of our understanding of Marsha came from the accounts of people who did not like or come from the same space as her. As the transness is now more accessible in the world, introducing the Institute to Black trans people who are resisting, grappling with survival, and looking for community has become a clear need." End quote. Thank you for tuning in to today's segment. Once again, I'm Sophie Miller from Polystory, and have a fantastic day. Thank you, Sophie, for educating us on the Black Transvestite Trailblazer. Hope you all enjoyed this episode of the Jaguar and that you'll join us again next week for another episode. As always, go Jags!